New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. You might be curious to know that what the brain truly wants is to engage the world and use its capabilities to fulfill its potential. It wants us to thrive, to love, to enjoy ourselves at all levels, including body, heart, mind, and spirit. Our bodies are surviving longer than ever before, but what good is an extended lifespan if your brain can't go the distance? So we might ask ourselves, how may we increase the health of our brains in order to be smarter, healthier, and more emotionally resilient? Today we'll be exploring these questions and more with our guest, Dr. Brant Courtright. Brant Courtright is a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at California Institute of Integral Studies. His consulting practice specializes in cutting-edge brain health and neuroscience-informed depth therapy. He's the author of Psychotherapy and Spirit, Theory and Practice in Transpersonal Psychotherapy. Also, Integral Psychology, Yoga, Growth, and Opening the Heart, and The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, Upgrade Your Brain, Upgrade Your Life. Join us for the next hour as we explore improving our brain's health with our guest, Dr. Brant Courtright. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Brant, welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I'm glad to have you. I know that you have stated that you're not a researcher per se, but you teach neuroscience on the graduate level, and your motivation seems to be to accumulate the data and articles and essays from scientific journals and make those more available to the general public. Is, is that correct? That's right. I think of neuroscience as being just too important to be left to the neuroscientists, that the implications for the new neuroscience discoveries are immense for everybody. As a psychologist, I've often thought that psychology is way too important to be left to psychologists. We all need it. And it's the same with neuroscience. I think that the discoveries are so important that we all need to know them. So you use the term neurogenesis in the title of your book. 
tell us, what is neurogenesis? Good. So neurogenesis is the process of making new brain cells. The brain giving birth to new brain cells. Now, it used to be thought, up until just 16, 17 years ago, that the brain stopped growing new brain cells when we were in our early 20s. And after that, it was just a long, slow slide into decrepitude. And then they discovered that's wrong. Actually, the brain makes new brain cells throughout our entire life. Now, there's a slowdown in middle age and a plateauing, and a further slowdown in old age and a plateauing. But now they've discovered that you can actually increase those slowdown and plateaus and have the brain be producing new brain cells with um, big effects, uh, quite big effects um, on cognition, on emotional resilience, on immunity. So that's what this book is about. It's really about how to get the brain operating at a higher level than it is now. So there's a whole industry right now, a brain health industry, I'd call it. Uh, So is there a a formula or a pattern that we can plug into? Uh, Is there a pill we can take? (laughs) You know, that's what we all would love. Okay, the right pill or the right supplement or whatever it is. That's right. I think when it comes to the brain, nothing is simple. There's no one magic bullet for the whole brain. That the, the approach of this book is a holistic approach, an integral approach. So we're really looking at body, heart, mind, spirit. That all of our consciousness comes through the brain. Everything we experience, we experience through the brain. And much of the neuroscience literature I think, reduces the brain to just physical processes. And if we look at the whole of human consciousness, all of our body, heart, mind, spiritual dimensions of being, it all comes through our brain. And there is some current neuroscience research now, which is finally starting to include spirit, which is opening up our understandings rather than having this materialistic, reductionistic view of the brain as this physical thing in which imagination and love and desire get somehow quantified. And it's sort of like um, trying to pour the contents of consciousness into a, a chemical beaker. I mean, much of the neuroscience literature is is... The brain is just a pale reflection of what actually is there. And so this book attempts to really open up the neuroscience literature to the larger dimensions of consciousness as well. Now, you know, you just made the same, and then all experience comes through the brain. So it just, what if we put our, our finger on a hot stove? Mm-hmm. Now, can you describe how... And it burns, and so uh-huh, we pull our uh-huh, finger back. Uh-huh. It, it, that goes through the brain? That's right. The nerve endings on the end of our finger go up to our brain very quickly. The brain goes, ouch, and tells another part of the brain, move your hand. And it happens so fast that it happens without thought. But that's right. It all goes through the brain. Probably the only thing that doesn't go through the brain is out-of-body experiences. 
But even then, the memory of them would go through the brain. So, like, that's in the realm of parapsychology or yes. people who have died and who on the, let's say, surgery, and then they report seeing things in, that happened that they couldn't have known and yeah, stepped that, out of the body. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Although still the recording has to happen in the body. I so, see. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, uh, going back to to the magic pill uh, <laughs> for yeah. for our brain health— you mentioned, I, I thought it was so interesting, you you talk at some length about the brain has a protective system. Mm-hmm. And so the pharmaceutical companies who might do give us, let's say Prozac as, as an uh, example, you saying that it may not react in the way that the pharmaceuticals would like it to react. Say something about that. Yeah, that's right. You know, it was it was through Prozac that the significance of neurogenesis really became clear. So once they discovered that the brain does make new brain cells throughout our entire life, they didn't quite know what the significance was. Okay, so great. Now we know we make brain cells throughout our entire life. But it was really the discovery that in depression there's a big slowdown in the rate of neurogenesis. And that antidepressant drugs, particularly SSRIs, but others as well, work not, as uh, the theory says, by increasing serotonin, but by actually increasing the rate of neurogenesis. So there is this big myth that is very popular in society right now, that depression is caused by a serotonin deficiency in the brain, that it's a biological illness. You go into most doctors, most medically trained psychiatrists, and they will say, if you're depressed, you have a biological illness that consists of a serotonin uh, depletion. And what you need is something to increase your serotonin in your brain. It turns out that theory is not true. They have done numerous experiments now to show that, first of all, people who are depressed, most studies show that they have normal or higher than normal levels of serotonin. There's a few studies to show they have lower lower than normal, but most of them show average or higher. And What they discovered is that the way the antidepressants work is by increasing the rate of neurogenesis. So they've done experiments where they have given mice, for example, um, Prozac, depressed mice, um, and they've gotten very good at making mice depressed. How do they know a mouse is depressed? Yeah. (laughs) So most of what we know about the brain, we know from animal studies, from mammal studies, All mammals have the same brain architecture, the same neurotransmitters, um, the same hormones, neurohormones, neuromodulators. Um, They all work in basically the same way. The size of the different subsystems varies. But they've gotten very good um, in mice studies and monkey studies at making depressed mice. Um, And they can do this in a number of ways. One is constant stress constant stress and 
they are anxious for a while, they, they run around, and then they finally just kind of collapse into depression. Um, so they're not doing a lot of movement. They're kind of huddling in their right. cage or something like that. Yeah. That's right. They don't explore new things. Yeah. They're not interested in sex. There's anhedonia. Or you get a mouse to live next to a great big bully mouse that right. beats it up and bites yeah. it and yeah. pins it down. It freaks out, lots of stress, and then it just slumps. It just comes into this oh, d- depressed poor slumped. mice. <laughs> I know, I know. You know, Freud said that a surgeon is somebody who has sublimated his sadism. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's true of some of these mice experimenters, oh, too, I must say. So, but, but going back to they were discovered that the serotonin levels, it, it's not it. But, but That's right. That's neurogenesis right. happens. That's with, right. Is this a good thing, then, to take Prozac? Well, that's an interesting question. So the study that did it, let me just do this for um, to clarify. So they gave mice um, and monkeys, they've done it with cross species, they gave them Prozac, and they allowed the neurogenesis to occur that the Prozac stimulated, but they didn't allow the rise in serotonin levels. And they find that the mice become non-depressed. Then they did the opposite. They allowed the serotonin levels to rise, but they stopped the neurogenesis from happening. No change in depression levels. So serotonin by itself doesn't increase, it doesn't get you out of depression. What it does is it stimulates neurogenesis. But there are many things that stimulate neurogenesis. I'm here with Brant Cortwright, and he's the author of The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, Upgrade Your Brain and Upgrade Your Life. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Brant Courtright, and he's the author of The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, Upgrade Your Brain, Upgrade Your Life. Brant, just to be real clear now, going back to Prozac, so is that something we would want to take if we're depressed, and would that help us enjoy some neurogenesis? That's a very good question. My own personal feeling is that Prozac is way over-prescribed right now. Right now, one quarter of American women between the ages of 20 and 45 are on an SSRI, something like Prozac. 
doesn't something seem wrong with that picture that one quarter of American women are taking this? Um, the problem with Prozac and the other SSRIs and other antidepressants is that they have side effects, for one thing. Loss of libido occurs in most people, and that's depressing in itself. Um, loss of your sex drive. And they also work in less than 50% of the people. So for some people, probably antidepressants are just the thing that's needed. But there are many other ways of increasing neurogenesis that don't have side effects and which actually increase neurogenesis along the entire length of the hippocampus um, and so have both cognitive as well as emotional um, boosts along with it. So, all right, now you've brought up something else here, and I know you've devoted some attention to it. We all kind of understand about the triune brain, about the mm. reptilian stem, and then the limbic or the um, mammalian brain, and then that's covered by the neocortex. And then some even think of the prefrontal part of the neocortex is the fourth brain. Yeah, so, yeah. so you know, all of this brain system. But we don't hear very much about the hippocampus. Mm. And I've just found that fascinating to read about the hippocampus. So wh why is it important? Yeah, good. So the hippocampus is where new brain cells are created. And the hippocampus is this crescent moon-shaped structure there's actually one on each side of the brain. There's a, we have two hippocampi, but it's usually referred to in the singular. And one part of that crescent moon goes into the cognitive parts of our brain and is responsible for processing new memories. The other part of the hippocampus goes into the emotional part of our brain and is involved in emotion regulation, particularly the regulation of stress, and depression. So when neurogenesis slows down, we get cognitive problems, we get memory decline, memory deficits, we get emotional difficulties, we get stress, we get anxiety, fears, and we get depression. Um, in Alzheimer's, the hippocampus is losing massive amounts of neurons and the person can't make new memories. Um, the whole ego structure, the whole self-structure is really, it hinges on memory. Our whole executive function, our, our identity really hinges on memory, our capacity to make new memories. And so when that goes, it's like everything else begins to go. So if you're going to have a part of the brain that renews itself, the hippocampus is the exact part you'd like to have renewing itself. Okay, so, all right, now we're going to get into, I can hear our listeners saying, okay, how can, I, how can I help that out? How can I help it create new brain cells and not die out? And so what do we do? That's right, that's and right. I know that you approach this, as you said earlier, in a more holistic way, not just with a pill or with a computer game or something like that, but you look at it in a more holistic way. That's right. That's right. So increasing neurogenesis, it turns out, results in uh, cognitive enhancement, in a rapid learning of new things. It results in protection from stress, anxiety, 
and depression. So they did this one interesting experiment where they gave mice what they called an enriched environment. I would call it a holistic treatment, but they called it an enriched environment. And in this enriched environment, they gave them a really good diet. They gave them running wheels to exercise on. They gave them lots of new areas, novel areas to explore. They gave them nesting materials. They gave them other friendly mice to play with and mate with. And they found that they increased their rate of neurogenesis by five times. And these high neurogenesis rate mice were, they weren't quite super mice, but they had big cognitive and emotional advantages over their normal neurogenesis rate peers. And so that's what we're trying to do in this book. You know, most people think of the brain as either you've got a healthy brain or an unhealthy brain. But it turns out that what we think of as the normal healthy brain is actually operating at a level much below optimal. That we are living in such a neurotoxic world. There are so many assaults that our brain is taking in and neurogenesis is slowed down in so many ways that we are, almost all of us are operating well below our capacity. So this is really about bringing the brain up to a higher level than it is now. So, Brant, if we wanted to to know where we are in our neurogenesis, uh, are we at a better capacity or not? Is there a way to test it? Is there an fMRI, like functional MRI? Or is there some way to test it? Is there some way to test that we're not going into Alzheimer's or dementia? Yeah, right now, the brain imaging studies are not to the point of being able to say your rate of neurogenesis. Um, It's only on autopsy um, that they can do that right now. So with the mice, it's Um, that, that once they're dead, they cut open the brain, and they actually look at the physical brain. That's right. That's right. The the structures are so small, they can't get it on neuroimaging yet. So that's not a viable way for us to know, right? right? That's why most of what we know about the brain, we know from animal studies. However, you can tell partly by how you feel. If you're depressed, you probably have a low rate of neurogenesis. If you are anxious and chronically stressed, you probably have a lower rate of neurogenesis. If you're having memory problems, you probably have a lower rate of neurogenesis. So how you feel is a big indicator of your rate of neurogenesis. So it turns out the rate of neurogenesis can increase five times when you're young, when you're middle-aged, even in late middle age. And when you're in old age, the rate of neurogenesis can increase three to five times. With big changes in cognition, memory, and emotional stability. So what do we do to, to increase that rate? Good. That, that's the million-dollar yeah, question. Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that any one thing we do may be very effective on one half of the hippocampus or the other half, or maybe both. But when we only do one thing, like... Running, for example, aerobic exercise is one of the best things you can do. Any kind of aerobic exercise. Aerobic exercise means you breathe hard. Anything gets your heart rate going. So swimming, biking, walking fast, running, fast dancing, whatever. The brain takes off 
with new brain cells in that. However, about half of them die very soon. Half of them are pruned away. But then there are other things that serve um, to keep these new brain cells alive. So it's not a matter of just creating new brain cells. It's a matter of keeping them alive. Exactly. Because they they create and then they— there's always a pruning going on, isn't there? The, there's some creation, some are being pruned away. And so how do we that's keep right. them, that's right. these good ones? that Right. So that's why a holistic program is important, body, heart, mind, spirit. So this enriched environment for the mice, it turns out that certain things in their environment kept new brain cells alive. And other things stimulated the growth of new brain cells. And certain things increase the rate of neurogenesis on one part of the hippocampus, but not the other. So it's this total body, heart, mind, spirit approach. So the first part in terms of the body and diet, it turns out there's a lot of nutrients that increase our rate of neurogenesis. Um, Some of these increase the birth of new brain cells, and some of these keep new brain cells alive. So one of the most powerful um, supplements you can take or things you can eat is omega-3 fatty acids from uh, cold water fish. The brain is made up of about two-thirds fat, and of that, about one-third of it is DHA. And DHA is one of the three omega-3 fatty acids. So if you want to build a new high-end house, you want to use good materials. You don't want to use rotting wood. So to build a better brain, one thing we need to be doing is eating lots of healthy fats. And omega-3 fatty acids is one of the best things we can do. Would you suggest like taking a a fish oil uh, capsule? Um, for most people, that's, I think, a good idea. Um, it's good to find a fish oil capsule that is molecularly distilled so that it doesn't have traces of mercury in it and other heavy metals because mercury is a very potent neurotoxin. And also, it's good to get a supplement that has a high DHA level. Um, so some- how would we find this? How would we discern that it doesn't have mercury in it and it has high D. Uh-huh. So just look on the label and it'll say molecularly distilled and it'll also break down what are the three fatty acids in this particular formulation of it. So we want one with a high DHA level and it's good to do probably two, four, five grams a day of this for most people. Fish yeah. is is just in general a good thing unless it's farmed fish, in which case it's got right. PCB. And we and have other a things. problem with that now because our oceans are being really fished out. So this is kind of a catch twenty two of how how we're doing this. It's all connected. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I also want to talk a little bit about you mentioned running because I I know that you mentioned in running there is a certain side effect of of jogging or running really hard where we're bouncing our brain and yeah. you warn us to 
to be careful about how we're actually moving the body and jarring the brain. We'll talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Brandt Courtright, and he spells his name B-R-A-N-T, Courtright, C-O-R-T-R-I-G-H-T, Dr. Brandt Courtright, and he's the author of The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, Upgrade Your Brain, Upgrade Your Life. And if you want to know more about him and his work, you can go to his website, BrantCourtright.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Dr. Brandt Courtright, and he's the author of The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, Upgrade Your Brain, Upgrade Your Life. And I just briefly mentioned about running or that kind of, you said, aerobic exercise is really good, but we want to be careful not to jar our brains. There are these like mini little, what, what do you call it? Not full concussions, but mm-hmm. say something about that. Yeah, that's right. That. One of the worst things for the brain are different kinds of assaults on it. The brain is a very delicate thing. It's, it's the consistency of like soft tofu. And it's very easy in getting jarred or jangled into the skull, which is this bony structure that protects it, um, to reduce neurogenesis and to actually cause damage to the connections that are there. So a single concussion doubles our chance for Alzheimer's over a lifetime. That's, whoa, Um, that's a big, big risk. Yeah, it is. And so when you run, run gently. Some people run in a very hard step that just, you can see their whole body and brain is just getting jarred in that. We want to run gently. We want to run so that we're cushioning our brain as much as possible. Physical assaults are one of the big neurotoxic things in our environment and actually biking without a helmet is is the major cause of sports related concussions these days so biking with a helmet is also important and you and you even talk about having the most recently researched helmet not just any old helmet but but they've they've improved them through the years that's right to protect against the main kind of accidents that happen Yeah. yeah i want to talk about um our emotions we you talk about the we swim in a sea of emotions and um you also mentioned how the emotional brain runs a lot of the show and we think that we're so rational and logical and everything what does that mean the emotional brain is running the show and why is that good so this really comes both from some of freud's earliest discoveries as well as the most recent discoveries in neuroscience. What Freud really showed us is that far from being this rational, cool creature of reason, human beings are 
um, run by our emotions much more than we'd like to think. And neuroscience is really backing that up, that emotion organizes the brain and emotion regulation is one of the main functions of the brain. It's one of the main functions of the self and one of the main functions of the brain. And so much of what we do is guided by our feeling, by our felt sense. That emotion is this, again, it's this ocean that we swim in. We are constantly being drawn here, away from here, often unconsciously, without even knowing it. There's an emotional dimension and depth to our experience that as we tune into it, we begin to realize just how much we are being guided and informed by emotion. Now, I, I, I think you mentioned in your research that we have so much information coming at us at any one time. Just it's, We're just saying, you know, it's, it's really, we're bombarded. And so it's been said that the brain needed a quick kind of way to assimilate this. And the thinking process would be much too slow. So there's this immediate like way that the brain processes feelings and we process so fast. That's right. That's and right. it helps us decide what to pay attention to. Exactly it's, it's, right. It's so exactly good. right. That, that out of this vast stream of information pouring into us, emotion tells us what to pay attention to, how to pay attention to it, and what to do about it. That it's, it's a method of a quick evaluation. It's a form of information, a kind of um, information that we don't get in any other way. Um, Neuroscientists have discovered that people with a particular sort of brain injury where they don't feel emotion end up at a huge disadvantage in their lives. I think it was in Daniel Goleman's book, he talked about an attorney who had a, this sort of a brain injury where it didn't affect his cognitive abilities. He was just as smart as ever, but he had no capacity to feel emotion. And although he started out very rich, within a few years he was broke. It's like even knowing where to invest your money, we need emotion. Um, just, you know, this idea of being like a Spock on Star Trek or something, it's a fantasy. Um, logic by itself just spins out into an infinity of possibilities. We need emotion to come in and say, ah, this, this is where we land. This is the action to take. Um, this is meaningful. This is not me. And then different ones of us would have different preferences that are developed through time, I guess. Is that right? It's a- That's right. And so in, in one way, you can look at um, problems in living as problems in emotion regulation, right? That what we are doing all the time is regulating our emotion. Or what do we mean by emotion regulation? Emotion regulation is the process of acting in ways that make us feel good or better or reduce feeling bad, okay? So unskillful emotion regulation leads to pain and suffering. Let me give you a simple example, the alcoholic. The alcoholic wakes up in the morning, feels terrible, and says, I want to feel better, and so has a drink. Temporarily, they do feel better, or at least they feel less bad. 
But pretty soon, that drinking leads to making decisions and acting in ways that feel even worse. That's a simple example of poor or unskillful emotion regulation. Um, Everything we do from the moment we wake up is guided by emotion regulation, trying to feel better or less bad. I wake up and I feel like just staying in bed because it feels so good, but getting fired from my job would feel terrible. So I get out of bed and I jump in and I take a shower because going to work and smelling bad would feel bad. And so I take a shower and then I eat breakfast because I want to have a good blood sugar or I don't eat breakfast because I'm trying to lose weight. It's like everything we do, it's guided by wanting to feel better and trying to reduce feeling bad. And in some ways, what psychotherapy is, it's a process of learning increasingly skillful ways of regulating our emotion. You know, even the term emotion regulation, in some ways I don't really like, it's more emotion navigation. The term emotion regulation almost implies control, but we are as much guided by our feelings as we guide our feelings. Well, I know that you mentioned there are like some universal emotions, and some of them uh, enhance the neurogenesis that make us more more neural pathways and networks. And some of them, when we're feeling them in a chronic way, do the opposite. And can you talk about those two? That's right. That's right. Yes, good. So it turns out that the negative emotions of shame, anxiety and fear, um, anger and rage, sadness and depression, all of these are, of course, important to the human experience and important signals about our situation. But when we experience them chronically, then they decrease our rate of neurogenesis. And that's the key word, when they're chronic, when they're, when they're part of our lives in, a, in just over and over, we're in a sea of anger or a sea of rage or fear then that's when it becomes very debilitating. Exactly And we right. actually lose brain cells. Yes, we can. That very stressful situations can actually kill off neurons in the hippocampus as well as bringing neurogenesis to a snail's pace. Um, so chronically stressful relationships or being bullied in a relationship or having a really... Uh, scary boss who's always on your case. These are bad for the brain. These are actually neurotoxic for the brain. And similarly, isolation is deadly for the brain. And that's an epidemic in our society. Isolation is like huge right now. And we think that that we are... um, in contact with others because we have cell phones and we have, you know, uh, computers and email and all of that. But but it uh, there's something that's not happening there in that kind of virtual reality that that is good for the brain. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's that's right. That in this hyperconnected world, more and more people think that they're connected, and in some ways they are. But it's a connection that lacks a certain physicality, a certain somatic dimension to it. 
And when we don't have that, um, you know, touch in itself increases neurogenesis and a lack of touch reduces neurogenesis. And so when we are in constant virtual contact with people, there's a certain excitement to that, but there's also a certain stress with it. There's a certain stress that comes with each new ping on the, on the cell phone or each new text message. And it's a kind of relationship that is probably better than nothing, but on the other hand, it also is not as good as just plain old hanging out with people and being in hugging contact and having a reassuring touch on your shoulder by a friend, that is hugely important for neurogenesis. You know, most of all of our interviews are done the way we're doing it right now. Mm-hmm. We're face-to-face, mm-hmm. sitting across from one another. Our physical bodies are present. And I just find that there's some quality that is present that just cannot be quite reproduced when, when let's say, we do it over Skype or over some sort of electronic media. Do you find I'm that totally, true? I'm totally with you on that. I've been doing a number of radio interviews, and this is the first one I've done in person, and this is a whole different feeling to it. This is the way to go, absolutely, yeah. if you can. Yeah. Well, there, there is something about human to human. We're, we're breathing together. We're... we're I, there's just something else happening there. And um, I'm just wondering also, I, I do want to talk about, the, you say, physical touch. When people live by themselves, then what can they do to help if they're, if they're living alone? Good question. Um, one would be get massages. One would be be with friends occasionally if you can who you do touch and who touch you back. Isolation, as you're saying, is a gigantic problem right now. Something like a quarter of seniors describe themselves as isolated, and they are at high risk for cardiovascular disease and depression. Um, Isolation and loneliness is now a bigger uh, risk factor than smoking for cardiovascular disease. Interesting, interesting. Um, I'm here with Dr. Brant Courtright, and he's the author of The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, Upgrade Your Brain and Upgrade Your Life. He's also a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at California Institute of Integral Studies. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Brant Courtright, and he's the author of The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, Upgrade Your Brain, Upgrade Your Life. I know that you give, Brant, some attention to the need for good sleep. Why is that important? Good. It turns out that the lack of sleep has a big effect on our rate of neurogenesis. So not getting enough sleep slows down the rate of neurogenesis by a big margin. So one thing that for many years I have underestimated, and I think many people have, is the importance of a good night's sleep. More and more it's being shown that the brain cleans itself out as we sleep. That most of us, most everybody, needs seven or eight hours of sleep. Almost nobody can get by on less than six. And most people need seven or eight of good, solid sleeping. And what happens is that they've just discovered this new system called the glymphatic system in the brain. So they never used to know how the brain cleaned itself of the toxins that accumulated. It's sort of like an aquarium. You know, you need to have a filter to filter out all of the toxins that build up. Well, it turns out that there is this system called the glymphatic system, that it takes its name from the glial cells in the brain, which has this housekeeping function of pruning new brain, old brain cells. And there's this cerebral spinal fluid, which increases, um, which actually doubles in the brain. And it's like the brain gets a bath or a shower at night, and it particularly clears it of beta amyloid. And beta amyloid is what builds up in Alzheimer's. So in a good night's sleep, we wake up refreshed because our brain is, has been cleansed. It's been purified. And you know how when you don't get a good night's sleep, you wake up, you, know, you take a shower, and even afterward, you feel like you haven't had a shower. You still feel there. Well, that's the brain toxins. It's like your brain has not had a chance to clear out that debris. So getting a good night's, night's sleep both increases the melatonin in the brain, which increases neurogenesis, and it increases, it, it decreases the stress hormones, which also has an elevating effect on neurogenesis. And just by itself, it increases our rate of neurogenesis. You know, it reminds me when you said um, beta amyloids, uh, which are what's present with Alzheimer's uh, brains. And there was a fascinating piece of research that you mentioned in your book about these nuns who are teachers. And uh, they, they uh, until a very old age, they were teaching and they were learning new things. It was, uh, they were lifelong learners. And when they dissected their brains... They found that they had the same kind of uh, beta amyloids that Alzheimer's people had, but they were bright and they were they they didn't have any of the symptoms of uh, Alzheimer's. So, what's going on there? Yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> yeah, this was an amazing discovery. Um, it turns out that people who are lifelong learners and use their brains throughout their lifespan, build up what's called cognitive reserve. And cognitive reserve protects against Alzheimer's. What it does is it creates new neural pathways in the brain. So if you have a, a life in which you haven't used your mind very much, 
When it starts to accumulate this beta amyloid and starts to uh, go downhill, you don't have any backup systems. Um, whereas if you've been using your mind, you've been learning new things um, in many different ways. There's lots of ways of learning. Um, you build up this cognitive reserve so that you have these extra connections, these other pathways, and seem to be uh, protected from Alzheimer's. It's been an amazing discovery. And I think that you mentioned in the research that even when, when and if Alzheimer's does set in, the rate of, of being in that state is much shorter and, and death comes much quicker. You're not like years and years in this decline, but it just sort of, all right, it happens, but it's much faster. And I think that we would all want that rather than being in this long, prolonged uh, state yes, of exactly dementia. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I think the theory is that because when the symptoms finally do hit you then, hit the person then, that they've used up all the other connections, and so the decline goes very fast. And that's right. I think that's how we'd like to go. We don't want to be suffering in Alzheimer's for a long time, if right. possible. Right, exactly. I would like to cover one other subject. I mean, we've talked a bit, little bit about the emotional part, the which is kind of the heart center, the the body, and a little bit about the physical. And But let's talk about the spiritual and that's an interesting part that you've added to this holistic view of how we can have a healthier brain. And you talk about how our spiritual practice can enhance our brain health. So say something about that, Brand. Yeah, so it looks like spiritual practice also increases our rate of neurogenesis. And if you look at the brains of meditators, it looks like Two particular kinds of spiritual practice are helpful in this. So one spiritual practice is mindfulness practice. And what mindfulness practice does, it seems to increase growth along the entire length of the hippocampus, both the cognitive and the emotional side of the hippocampus. Um, being in the here and now, paying attention to the moment-by-moment moment arising of experience, is very good exercise for the brain and stimulating, it looks like, of, of the hippocampus, of neurogenesis. The other practice seems to be heart-opening practices, devotional love practices, devotional prayer, compassion practices. These also seem to increase the neurogenesis rate along the entire axis of the hippocampus. Um, and so it looks like Spiritual practice is one of the very best things we can do to keep our brains sharp and alive. So in, in that practice, a heart-opening one, it might be like a gratitude practice that would open the heart and, and be uh, grateful and, and maybe prayer for others, you know, is kind of heart-opening. And mindfulness, being present in the moment, and not being taken away. I want to say a few yes. things about, or have you say a few things about those positive emotions such as caring and love, which would be mm. enhanced by that mm. heart-opening meditation. Um, and also we talked about lifelong learning, and the other positive one is uh, keeping our interest and excitement 
you talked about the mice in the in having a good environment where there's lots to play with and lots of new tunnels to explore and that sort of thing. That's kind of keeping that cognitive excitement. And the other one is is enjoyment and joy. I mean, just being the brain wants us to be joyful. Exactly right. That's right. The, the, the brain is wired for pleasure, for love. That that neurogenesis increases with love, with supportive relationships, with caring, with joy. Um, and neurogenesis goes way down with their opposites, with the negative emotions. So having relationships and having feelings, which are mostly in the positive spectrum, is really good for our brain. That, that, that are, that's right, our brain wants us to engage with the world and engage in a way that brings forth its own capacities. And in doing that, it stimulates the brain to be even more of itself. Um, so, and uh, you, you talk about the brain being under constant construction. It's like, I, th- I think you, you mentioned there, um, um, the ancient philosopher uh, Heraclitus, Heraclitus yes. who said, uh, we never enter the river at the same point ever. It's, it's always a new river. And the brain is always, it's not a static thing. It's just always new. It's a new, new cells are being formed, new pathways, and then those old ones are being pruned away. And it's just, it's just this massive action and activity. That's exactly right. The brain is always in movement. It's always adapting to this new environment. When we're learning new things, our brain is stimulated and it's moving. Listening to this radio show right now is stimulating your brain. Um, When we learn new things, when we're in new environments, when we're with loving relationships, when we're eating well, when we're exercising well, when we're using our capacities, when we're opening our consciousness, this is all good for the brain. And the brain, it's like this slow-moving amoeba in a way. It's not this static, it's not a computer, it's not this static dead thing. It's this living, growing, moving process more than anything. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, I, I hope that people are are stimulated by this conversation. I know I am. I'm excited by it uh, to, to know that we can keep learning new things. We can keep our brains active and healthy even into our 90s. So uh, there's no reason not to if we follow some of these precepts. I want to thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions program today, Brant. Thank you for having me. This has been a real pleasure. It's been my pleasure as well. I've been speaking with Brant Courtright. He's a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at California Institute of Integral Studies, and his consulting practice specializes in cutting-edge brain health and neuroscience-informed depth therapy. And he's the author of The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, Upgrade Your Brain, Upgrade Your Life. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, brantcourtright.com. And he spells his name B-R-A-N-T, Courtright, C-O-R-T-R-I-G-H-T.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3554. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.